we talk an awful lot, or a fair bit, about calendars. Uh, we operate, particularly at New Dope Baptist Church and New Dope Christian Academy, under three calendars. There's the calendar that each and every one of us use on a day-to-day basis. Today is November 22nd in the year 2020, a year we will all never forget. And we'll look forward to moving past us. There are two other calendars we use as well, given that the fact that there's an academy here, we operate on a school calendar as well. The year starts in September and it ends in early June. The third calendar that we're less used to, but I have grown over the years to love, is the Christian calendar, the church year. And the reason why I love it as much as I do is because it orders our lives around the life of Jesus Christ. And I think that there's no better way to order our lives than around Jesus. This Sunday is the last Sunday of the year. It is the 25th Sunday of the season of Pentecost, which is also known as ordinary time. So that means that next Sunday, I'm going to wish you a happy new year, John, because next Sunday in a profound way will be happy new year. It'll be the first Sunday of the Christian new year, and it'll be the first Sunday of our four-week series on Advent, the celebration of the coming in flesh of the Lord Jesus. It is also a season, Advent meaning coming, it is also a season that we not only celebrate the first coming of our Lord, but we also anticipate the second coming. We are truly people who live between the first and second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We live in anticipation of his second advent, his return in glory when he presents the kingdom to the Father and establishes the new heaven and the new earth where we in Christ will dwell securely forever. But before we get to that celebratory week, good Lord willing, this week is Thanksgiving Sunday. So it's appropriate It seems to me that we spend time this morning giving thanks to God for who he is, for what he's done for us. Christians, I think you'll agree with me, are called more than any others to be grateful people. But being grateful is a gift. I don't know if you've met very many grateful people. And the fact that it might take you a moment or two to think of a grateful person is testimony to how difficult it is to live a profoundly grateful life. The 79th Psalm, Psalm 79.13 says, But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will count your praise. Beautiful line connected all the way back to the psalmist. Generation after generation, and here's this generation carrying out Psalm 79, 13, giving thanks to the Lord forever and recounting his praise. I'm of the mindset that in the new heaven and the new earth, one of the things that we will be doing eternally is giving thanks to God. And it's staggering to think that we can give thanks to our great God over eternity and not exhaust our gratitude, our gratefulness. In the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20, well-known verse, We are to give thanks always and for everything. There's no asterisk there that says except 2020. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul goes so far as to say in Romans 1.21 that to lack gratefulness is to have a dark heart. Paul says that one of the chief characteristics of the unregenerate individual in Romans chapter 21 is that they do not give thanks. That's a profound truth to meditate upon. And then yet, in just a few chapters later, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, he says this, but thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There's this beautiful move in Romans 1 to the dark-hearted, ungrateful human being to the person who's converted and brought into the sphere of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 6, Paul says, thanks be to God for that salvation that has moved us out of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a text that we'll be looking at, the good Lord willing, a little bit more as the new year comes around. But today, these precious verses, and really we'll only look at Romans 12, 1 this morning in this brief Thanksgiving homily. Today, this precious verse sets the table for Thanksgiving. You see what I did there? Romans 12, 1, a text we'll look at more in depth, but today I want to take an angle of thanksgiving on it as a way of setting us up literally, quite literally, for giving thanks, perhaps even around the table this coming Thursday. There are two questions, keeping it as simple as possible and keeping our minds filled with this idea of giving thanks. Two questions I would love for you to wrestle with even now and then throughout this coming week right out of the first verse of Romans chapter 12. The first question is this, what is the basis for our thanksgiving? You ever contemplated that question? Why do I give thanks? Thank you, dear Lord, for my health. Thank you, dear Lord, for this food. Thank you, dear Lord, for my family. Thank you, dear Lord. But why do we do that? What is the basis for our giving of thanks? And then in the second half of that first verse, the question that immediately follows then, is how then should we give thanks after we understand what the basis of our giving thanks is? So two simple questions. What is the basis of our thanksgiving? And then what then ought we give thanks for? At least according to this verse as a way of setting us up to a broader season of thanksgiving. So let's look at the first question. What is the basis for our thanksgiving? Romans 12, 1 and 2 is this massive pivot out of Romans 1 and 11, you see the therefore, and you know the therefore, and you want to see and find out what it's there for. It's going to accompany an appeal. So Paul has gone through 11 chapters of Romans, which we'll review come the first of the year, God willing, and especially Romans 9, 10, and 11, which we'll look at in just a second. And Paul is, he's still caught up, that great doxology that you heard John read. Paul's still caught up, and he's going to pivot from that. It has meaning for our lives, and I'm going to appeal, or other, other translations say, I want to urge you, therefore, well, therefore what? Therefore, in light of the wisdom of God that's been displayed in Romans 1 to 11. So Paul is, Paul's wanting us to meditate upon those chapters and then come to the conclusion, this is how then we ought to live. It's a very prototypical pattern for the Apostle Paul not much in the way of imperative in Romans 1 to 11. Romans 12 and following is where he comes. Based on what I've taught you, this is how then you ought to live. And we're going to spend a fair bit of time 
uh, taking apart Romans chapter 12, one of the most glorious chapters in all of the Bible. And there's a, if there's a better chapter in all the Bible and to answer the question, what is the church? I don't know what chapter that would be. And one of the things I am absolutely convinced of that God is at work in and through these pandemic times is asking us to circle our wagons and come back and ask that fundamental question all over again. What is the church? Who is the church? And what is this pandemic revealing about her that he does not want us to miss? I hope that whets your appetite a little bit for the coming year as we look into Romans chapter 12. Such a beautiful, beautiful chapter. What one source, let me ask you this question underneath the question of what is the basis of our thanksgiving. What is the, what one source most greatly affects the way that you look at and evaluate this present age? Stop and think about that for a second. And if you don't have an answer right off the top of your head, if you would, spend time this afternoon, this evening, as you're lying in your bed. What does inform me? What is the primary source of information for me that affects the way that I look at the world? I'm guessing for many of you, it's, it's network news. One of the things my wife and I have gotten in the habit of saying as we talk about different things that are going on in the world right now and we draw specific conclusions, we, we challenge one another gently along the way. And I, I'll say to her and she'll say to me, how did you draw that conclusion? And invariably, we find ourselves saying things like this. Well, I saw it on the news or I read it in the paper. And by doing that, we, we, we've had a check in our own spirits that remind us that each of those sources has an agenda, be it left or right. And so we have to ask ourselves, is the, is the conclusion that we're drawing fair? Do we have enough information to draw that conclusion, or are we singularly sourced? And take that source, if you please, as the gospel. Or... Do you, is your primary source family? Uh, many of you are way more experienced and knowledgeable about things that are going on in our world right now. And so you may have that person in your life where, gee, I'm not exactly sure how to think about this. Let me pick up the phone and give so-and-so a call. It, you may have that person. Praise God if you do. Or, or a friend. If it's not a family member, a friend. Man, you know, this, this guy's got a master's degree in poli-sci. He knows everything about everything that's going on. I think I'll give him a buzz. You know, here's one of your lifelines to find out how should I be thinking about some of these kinds of things. Is that your source? Are those your sources? Now, uh, now you, you know I'm a preaching pastor here, so you know that the last source I'm going to ask you about and whether or not it's the primary source that informs you is the Word of God. The Apostle Paul has an answer for that. Guess what he's going to say? I appeal to you. I urge you. Paul's getting in after it now. He's getting after it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I love the way the NIV, and this is the way I memorized it in the NIV a number of years ago. I appeal to you, I urge you, Brothers, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, that verse, that half of a verse, 
almost as much as any other verse in the Bible has developed what I describe as a liturgy of life for me. This verse, perhaps more than any other verse in the Bible, informs my worldview. Let me explain to you, because this is what I hope to teach you this morning, and I hope you see it in in the Word of God. Paul teaches us that the basis for evaluating things in this present age is through the prism of the mercies of God. That the basis for our thanksgiving, here's your answer, the basis for our thanksgiving is the mercies of God. And the, the, the best illustration I have is immediately at hand. Think of the way that you look at and view the world as a pair of glasses. This informs the way that you think, and this informs the way that you see particularly things. And so it's very easy for me to take my glasses off, hold them up to you, and say, what are the glasses that you're looking through that determine how you think and feel and behave about anything at any given moment? That illustration will get me a lot of mileage because then we can begin to say, maybe you need a new prescription. Or maybe if you haven't worn glasses this time, you need to humble yourself and realize you're getting older and your eyes are failing. You're going to need glasses sooner or later. Even if they're they're so-called cheaters, like these are. I'm not that old that I need a prescription, John. (laughs) Paul teaches us that the basis for our thanksgiving, but also for the for anything else in this world is through the mercies of God. He looks back over the 11 chapters of Romans, that's the therefore, and ties them all together in his appeal with the ribbon of mercy. So, so stop and think about this very practically. Okay, so I'm going to go home, and I'm, and I'm going to have, have a little lunch with my wife, and then I may, I don't know, I may turn the TV on and watch a little bit of football. One of the things that I have trained myself to do over many years is to watch football through the lens of Romans 12.1. So I, I, I take my glasses and I'm thinking, okay, I'm looking at life through the mercies of God and now I'm going to watch the NFL through the lens of the mercies of God. How does that shape the way I think about what's going on that screen? Because it's not just the game I'm watching, there'll also be commercials that'll come on, and they're going to try to sell me whatever it is they think they need in order to save my soul. And it might be with images that I don't want sticking in my head very long. Or if you're not inclined to sports, you might go home and you might turn on your favorite news program, and that might be on until you go to sleep tonight. Are you going to watch it naked? Or are you going to put your glasses that say, I'm going to watch this through the mercies of God lens? What happens then? What happens then, John, is that your enemies now begin to take a different light when you're looking at them through the mercies of God. Even those with whom you're in lockstep now take on an entirely different perspective when you're looking at them through the mercies of God. And we ought to give thanks to God for that because every single one of us in this room, every single one, past, present, and future, has a worldview, has a liturgy of life. You may not be able to articulate it. Most of you would be able to at least say, these are the things that are most important to me in life. This is why I do this. This is why I voted for him, her. 
This is why I live here and not there. This is why I have this job and not that job. Everybody has that within them. The question is, what's the primary source that informs that view? Because we all have them. We all have them. Paul urges us this morning to see life through the mercies of God. The mercies of God, God's compassion and his goodness that is shown to his children. In Romans chapter 9, I mentioned this just earlier, Romans 9, 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So mercy is not an abstract concept. Mercy is who God is, and it's always merciful action. Mercy just doesn't hang in the air like a virus. Mercy always moves, and it moves toward hurting people. It moves toward people in need. It moves toward sinners. The essence of mercy is the goodness of God and his compassion shown to his children. Turn the page back with me and look at Romans eleven thirty 30 to 32. For just as you were at once, watch this now, how glorious is this? Just as you were once at one time disobedient, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, meaning the Jews, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. God does what he does to display his mercy. His giving people what they do not deserve. It displays God's goodness and compassion to his children. You and I are privileged and urged, I urge you, Paul says, to look at the world through the lens of the mercies of God. This ought to inform our worldview, our liturgy of life. In the Old Testament, mercy is a controlling attribute. That's a bold statement. In the Old Testament, mercy is a controlling attribute of our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. It literally is who he is. One cannot say that God has mercy or God acts mercifully, if you please, because God, God is mercy, like he is love. Pastor, you're kind of overstating that, aren't you? Well, um, I don't mind you wondering that because I'm going to take you to Psalm 103, Psalm 103 and beginning in verse 8. This is a repeat of what God said to Moses for the first time in Exodus 34. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Some of us need to highlight that because we've got a view of God that does not see him as merciful, that does not see him as gracious, that sees him as perpetually angry and certainly not abounding in steadfast love. I need Psalm 103, 8 in my repertoire. 
nor will he always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not, 103.10, he does not deal with us according to our sins. Amen? Amen. Does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. If he did, nobody would be in this room right now. As high as the heavens, woo, come on now, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Give thanks for that this week. As far as the east is from the west, that means an infinite distance. That's what the writer does. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Some of you in this room, including myself, need to know that as well. He has removed your sin in Christ as far as infinitely possible from you. Don't try to track down the trail and pick them back up. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those, here it is again, who fear him, who worship him, who put him first, who put him as the lens through which they look all at life. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. Do you know how many times I've said that to the Lord? I'm a broken man right now, dear God, and your psalm says that you're well aware of my frame and that I feel just like dust. I'm preaching here. You with me? Let's go. The best yet, though. The best yet. Lamentations. Oh, how we need the book of Lamentations right now. Oh, how we need to learn how to lament. Oh, a third or more of the Psalms are lament Psalms. We are meant to lament, to cry out to the Lord, how long? To cry out to the Lord, where are you and what is it that you're doing? But always, always wrapped in this. Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You know what's happening in Lamentations, right? God has called Jeremiah, who's known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah loved God's people. He he was broken, broken by their sinfulness and how they sought to destroy him, the prophet of God. And God said to Jeremiah, he would never get a job, Jeremiah. He would never get a job in a church nowadays. He would never be able to submit this resume. He'd be immediately rejected. Yet he was called of the Lord. And the message, the message that God gave to Jeremiah when he called him was this. I'm going to put fire in your bones. Your words are going to be like a hammer. And I'm going to tell you right now, they're not going to listen to a word you say. And I'm not going to let you leave. I'm going to destroy Jerusalem, and you're going to sit right in the middle of all of the destruction. Would you hire him? No, because today's application is how many people were in the church when you started and how many people when you left? How wide, not how deep. How wide. So Jeremiah accuses God, accuses God, heavy language forcing himself on him. Lamentations is five laments, poetic laments, some of the most glorious poetry ever written by a human being. 
Remind me to tell you about it someday because it'll take me another five minutes and I'm not gonna add it on right here. But my point is very simple, right smack in the middle, in the middle, in the middle of these dirges, hear it, hear the occasional building still following, see the dust still flying in the air, smell whatever smells when you're in rubble and all of these things come down because he literally is sitting in the middle of this and he's writing poetry, which means he's not doing it off the top of his head, which means he's actually sat there and he's actually worked the language so that he got what God wanted him to say, which means he's sitting in this and he's taking his time and God's not letting him move from this mess. And the smack dab middle of all of that drama that I just described to you is this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. How can you say that when your entire world is literally in rubble? His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I come all the way back around and ask, what are the glasses you're wearing? Because if you're not wearing glasses that say the mercies of God on them, you walk away from stuff like this. You spit into the face of God and say, I'm done. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. How do you look at the world? My dear brothers and sisters, as we give thanks this week, let us ask the Father of mercies to see the world through his eyes. I've already answered the second question, more or less, so we'll wind it down right here with our remaining few minutes. How then are we to give thanks? Biblical mercy, as I've said, is not merely an abstract concept. It's an action word. When you see the word mercy, you should see merciful action. Present your bodies, Paul says in the back half of Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So in a word, when the mercies of God is the basis for your thanksgiving, your act of thanksgiving is worship. That's the sermon. That's the sermon according to Romans 12, 1. But let me give you this before you go, because worship might just hit your ears and say, uh, an hour in church, a couple of songs, listen to him go on and on, and that's my worship. One of the things that we will, we will pull apart, if the good Lord is willing, is, is a discussion about what actually worship is for the Christian community. Let me give you an advance heads up. This ain't it. And this is my grounding for that. 
We're to give thanks by offering our whole person to God. All times, every way, present your bodies, not just your mind. It's not just an intellectual, cerebral activity. Paul uses bodies to literally get across the idea to us that it's whole person. God has not made you two pieces, a body and a soul. You are an embodied soul, or if you prefer, an ensouled body. It's a mystery. Humanity is profoundly mysterious. And yet God has created you that way to offer everything you have, nothing's excluded, everything you have to worship him. That's what he means by the word body. It's not just you showing up and being active with your body as we worship. It's even more than that. It's everything at all time. Through the lens of the mercies of God, I give myself to you. It is an act of the will that is enabled by his mercy. If you don't find this in you, say to God, I'm looking at life through your mercies. I need your mercy in order to act out of my will this worship that requires me to give to you while I'm doing the dishes while I'm cleaning the toilet, while I'm changing the oil, while I'm putting my hands in the air following John Christensen's leadership on Sunday. Living sacrifice. It's an oxymoron. A sacrifice is dead. That's the point. You've died. You've died but the new life keeps on living. The sacrifice that keeps on giving because it's living. We'll unpack that a little bit more. Holy and acceptable. This is such precious words. In Christ, as you offer yourself to him, he sees you as acceptable. Those of you who have had trouble over the years with esteem issues or you were never accepted by a parent or constantly bullied, and so you've got this mindset that just will never go away, that you can never, ever be acceptable, Right here, biblical proof, the voice of God telling you in Christ, full-bodied worship and offering yourself to the God is acceptable to him. Not just acceptable, but holy, set apart, God-like for his purposes. Ask him to overcome anything that may have been done to you earlier in your life so that you see through the mercies of God his acceptance of you that far surpasses anything that's ever been done to you. God help us. Even now, claiming these lives for you who've been battered and bruised May they come to see your beauty and your acceptance of them. Not just that, but you're making them holy, just like Jesus. We're set apart for him because he's the creator and the one who mercifully empowers our sacrifice. It is our spiritual worship. It is true and proper. Very difficult word to unpack later. It simply means true and proper. Fish swim, birds fly, Christians worship. Jesus would say in Luke chapter 6, 
verses 35 and 36. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Like Father, like Son. And indeed, the Son says in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think if you read that backwards, it holds true. If you want to know the mercy of God, you've got to be showing mercy to others. If you've got hate in your soul, if you've got anger that will not allow you to look at somebody who opposes you or who has a different opinion from you, please let me gently warn you and ask the Lord this day to soften that edgy part of your heart that you might know is mercy, that you can then become a conduit of that mercy to somebody who Jesus has said you ought to love. With our eyes on God's mercies, we give thanks by whole person worship. We were born again for this. Peter, and this is where we'll finish. Peter, I love, I love my dear brother Peter. Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, what has he done for you? He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what, Brother Peter? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the second advent in the last time. In this you rejoice. Come on now, here's 2020. Let's look at 2020 through the prisms of the mercies of God. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in worship, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, at the coming of Jesus Christ. You were born again for this. You cannot live this life if you have not been born again. And it's only because the gift that you've been given is imperishable, undefiled, and will never be taken away from you. An inheritance right now in the, in the hallways of heaven with your name on us. When you can see that, see what I'm doing here? When you can see that, when the mercies of God allow you to see that, then you begin to realize that some of those relationships 
that you're holding on to are what? Are what by comparison? In view of God's mercies, this Thanksgiving, offer yourselves to God living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to Him. And that's the only way you'll be able to know what His will is. His will, which is good and pleasing altogether perfect. Happy Thanksgiving, my dear brothers and sisters. We give you thanks, dear God, in the name of Jesus, empowered by your mercies. Oh, Father, I am not an ophthalmologist or an optometrist, never will be, but I know I need glasses in order to read. And now I know I need glasses to see the world the way that you want me to see it. For my own soul, dear God, and for the souls of my dear, dear brothers and sisters here today and watching on live stream, would you, would you take us into your office and give us an eye exam and fit us with the glasses that say, in view of the mercies of God. And by the mercies of God, I will pray these things for me and for them, for his glory, that we might full body worship. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. And amen.